If you would, grab your Bibles and uh, turn to the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel according to Luke, and we're going to be in chapter 6 this morning. I'm going to invite uh, Melissa Sanders up here to read the text for us. So if you would stand, and we will be in Luke 6, beginning in verse 12. All right, Luke 6, 12 through 26. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place, the great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem on the, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured." And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold... Your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning, recognizing our need of you. We thank you for your word, that it is a light to our path. And so I just pray that you would uh, shine that light before us this morning as we look into this passage. I pray that you would uh, illuminate our way and guide us towards you, to know you, to see you more clearly, and to worship you deeply. Uh, I do just pray this morning for your church all around the city, all around the world, Uh, for your saints that are gathered in different places um, at different times, all gathered under your authority, the authority of King Jesus. Pray that your gospel would go forth this morning, that it would uh, pierce into the hearts and lives of men and women, draw them to yourself. We pray for our, our, our brothers even in our church network, for Mountain View Church, for Redemption down in Loveland, for High Plains Harvest, for uh, churches out in Greeley, and for even uh, Aaron as he is uh, down uh, with our brothers and sisters at Applewood Baptist, that you would uh, guide him as he serves and ministers there this morning. Just thank you so much uh, that you have called us to yourself and that you are gathering a people from every tribe, from every nation, every tongue uh, to declare your glories in this world, uh, that your gospel is still going forth, it is still the power of God for salvation to those who believe. So I pray that this morning you would use your church in every place, and specifically even here, as we look into this text, that you would draw us to yourself. It is uh, for your glory that we are here, and it is for the sake of your name that we come before you, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
You can have a seat. There was a, uh, a guy that I knew in college uh, who was incredibly gifted uh, in the area of uh, music and art, and uh, so much so that he has actually uh, kind of made a name for himself and a career uh, with these gifts. And uh, he has uh, become uh, well-known and actually kind of made a, a unique uh, kind of skill set that's been uh, hired at different sporting events and all in singing the national anthem. So he's been hired by, you know, anything from, you know, minor league hockey teams all the way to the, the Golden State Warriors and all to actually uh, perform the national anthem before the games. And uh, this guy, uh, what he does is he actually sings the national anthem and paints at the same time. I don't know if any of you guys have, have seen this guy out there on a YouTube clip or whatever, but uh, uh, this is this guy that I used to know. And uh, what, how, how, he, how he paints is, is pretty interesting. So as he's singing the national anthem, he has a canvas that is uh, there. It's, it's a black canvas, and uh, there's just some color on the bottom of this, of this painting to start with. And as he begins to sing, he begins to put blobs of white paint on different places on this black canvas. And as you're watching him, you're not sure what he's doing, what he's creating, but he's, he's, he's painting something. At least it looks like he's, he's, he's trying to create something. And as he gets to the end of the song, you know, the land of the free and the home of the brave, he, he all of a sudden takes that canvas and he flips it upside down, which is actually the right direction. He puts one final stroke on it, revealing uh, an American flag and then, as you see it, what he has created is an image, a silhouette of the raising of the flag on Iwo Jima. And it's this kind of climactic kind of finish, and everybody's amazed uh, at what he has just created. And uh, what, what's so interesting about it is, while he's painting initially, you can't see what he's actually trying to do. You, you don't even think that it actually looks like anything, but it's only as he turns it uh, upside down and, and in the, the correct orientation, and you can see it from the right perspective, can you actually see what he has created? And it's this incredible, memorable image. And sometimes I think that the teachings of Jesus are kind of like that. Jesus says things that sometimes take us by surprise, are a little confusing to understand. What is he actually saying here? What does he mean by that? And it's only as we begin to look at it from the right perspective can we actually begin to understand and see the significant and beautiful image that Jesus is trying to show us. And I think in this passage that we're looking at this morning, we see Jesus beginning to show us a glimpse into the beautiful and yet the paradoxical kingdom that he is ushering in. And over the last few weeks, we have seen in Luke's Gospel this growing tension. This tension regarding this opposition that is beginning to arise concerning Jesus' teaching and His ministry. Right? Specifically, there's been recurring confrontation with the religious establishment of the day. Even starting back when He healed the paralytic and also declared His sins forgiven, uh, He has been confronted with how can He do that? We saw how he was confronted on the issue of fasting. And last week, Beck walked us through these two different accounts where the Pharisees and the scribes criticized Jesus for the way that he and his disciples approached the Sabbath. And so here in, in our text now, there's a sense in which the narrative is beginning to shift, in which there's been, in a sense, a, a rejection of, of, of the Jewish establishment of the day and the religious leaders 
And Jesus is now turning his attention to a, a new group of followers. These followers who have been gathering around his ministry and listening to his teachings. And it's to them that he is going to begin to reveal his kingdom. And it's only those who truly see Jesus for who he is that can actually belong to this new community. And so last week in verse 11, the passage concluded by saying this, that the Jewish leaders were filled with fury and discussed what they could do with Jesus. And so what does Jesus do in light of this opposition and rejection that he has received from the Jewish leadership? And that's what we'll see in these uh, couple different sections here. There's just going to be two main headings if you like to follow along and things to hang our hat on. The, first, the, the two sections that we're going to look at is first, the intentional selection of unqualified men. And then secondly, we'll see how Jesus displays a paradoxical vision of the good life. So first we see this intentional selection of unqualified men. It says in verse 12, In these days that Jesus went out to a mountain to pray. And as a mountain oftentimes is throughout the Scriptures, it's this, this sign of a place of meeting with God. And so Jesus ascends a mountain here, and He begins to pray to His Father. But this isn't just a 30-minute kind of prayer session. It says that He continues all night in prayer. And we recognize the significant decision that is about to be made in the selection of the 12 disciples. And so Jesus in this moment is giving us an example and showing us the importance of prayer in discerning our way. When we approach a significant moment or decision, where do we turn first? Do we first look to our own wisdom? Do we first start with saying, okay, I've got to evaluate all the, the pros and cons of this situation. Do I've got to kind of figure out what might be the best scenario and situation for me? How, 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 who can I ask and what professional can I look to to kind of help guide me in this? Do we start with ourselves and our own wisdom or do we start first with prayer to our Father? Jesus, the divine Son of God, cries out to His Father over and over again. You see this throughout His ministry. In the moment of His need, He first spends extended time in prayer. An all-night prayer session. I don't know how many of you have, have spent 30 minutes, an hour, two hours in prayer. How many of us have spent an entire night on our knees crying out to God to show us the way? This is what Jesus does in this moment. Prayer is the greatest gift that we have been given. The greatest source of, of strength and guidance. In James it says that any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who, who gives generously to all if he asks in faith. So where do we start? When we are confused, when we are, we are longing to know the way, do we start first by approaching our Father in prayer and crying out to Him? As Jesus concludes His time in prayer, says that He comes down from the mountain, and there are His followers. Up to this point, we've seen Jesus kind of calling different individuals to come after Him. Peter, James, and John. We saw a few weeks ago the, selection, the call of Levi. But to this point, He hasn't really set anybody out in, in a unique way. But here in this moment, He's going to select specifically from this large group of, of followers 12 men who are going to be set for a specific task. And here we have the selection of these well-known 12 disciples. 
or as Luke informs us, they are eventually designated as the apostles. An apostle is one who is sent by another, a a, a direct representative under the authority of another. So these 12 men are appointed for a very specific task that we don't see initially here, but we will see later. And especially if you read Luke's second volume, the, the, the book of Acts, we see that that is the recounting of the work that God used these 12 men in the, the building establishment of his church in the advance and proclamation of the gospel. But look at these 12 men. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Philip, Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel. Matthew, or Levi, and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and then Judas Iscariot, who we know as the traitor. What is significant here about this list is actually how insignificant these men are. They are everyday, normal guys. Some of them were fishermen. We have a a tax collector, a political activist. We have a skeptic and even a traitor. From different uh, accounts, we we, we see their personality at times. Some of them are are known to be rash. Some are judgmental. They are from backwoods towns and insignificant places. There is nothing that inherently qualified these men to take the position to which they were being called. From a human perspective, this this blue-collar group of of, of men who would be seen as uneducated and uninformed, they would not be the first choice that we would set for the vitally important role that they would ultimately fulfill. And so the only answer is, why does Jesus pick these men? Is Jesus mistaken? Is this just random? He just spent all night in prayer, so his his choice here is very intentional. And the only reason that we know is that this is God's sovereign choice to call them as His twelve appointed apostles. And there's, a, there's been a, a, a statement that's been made. I don't know who coined this or who, who said this first. And I think it rings true, especially as we look at the twelve disciples, that God does not call those who are equipped, but rather He equips those whom He has called. And so as we look at this list, it's a reminder to us that if you're tempted to think that ministry, that discipleship, that service for Jesus is only for the professionally qualified ministers, then you are mistaken in your understanding of the way that God often works. He uses the weak. He uses the despised of this world. He uses the foolish things to confound the wisdom of the day. And He uses twelve ordinary blue-collar men to change the face of the world. And so, what is important about these men is, first of all, that they accepted the call to follow Jesus. So if you are one who declares yourself a disciple and a follower of Jesus, then God has a way in which He is going to use you, He is going to equip you, He is going to gift you through His Spirit for the life, for the ministry, and the opportunity that He's going to set before you. And this is what He does with these men. Over the story, we will see their blunders, we will see their failures, we will see that they, they mess it up right and left. They fail to see, they fail to believe at times. And yet, Jesus intentionally invests in these men over the course of His ministry to prepare them 
for the life and the influence and the role that they are going to have in the advancement of His kingdom. Let's not minimize the work of God that He can do in all of our lives, no matter your history, no matter your education or your background. God can use you in His plan and in His purposes. The last thing that I think is significant to recognize in this uh, scene is the place that Luke uh, inserts this into his narrative. Um, I, th- I think it's significant here in light of the opposition that we have just seen and this kind of rejection that has happened is that, that when he then displays Jesus as this one who goes up on a mountain, meets with God, comes and identifies 12 men and then is about to give a message to this new community that he's doing something very profound. That he's actually, I believe, calling us to see Jesus as the true and the new and the better Moses figure. As in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that one a prophet like Moses would be raised up, who would lead his people. As Moses went up on a mountain long ago, as he met with God, as he, as he then commissioned God's Word to the covenant community at the time, we see here Jesus going up on this mountain, meeting with God, coming down and identifying and appointing and calling out. I don't think it's uh, unimportant, but there's 12 men who are identified. And what he is doing here is commissioning a, a, a new covenant community, a new Israel, if you will. And he's about to then give a message of this new community's life together. And so it's significant what, what Luke is doing here in displaying who Jesus is. So we see the intentional selection of these unqualified men, which then leads us to Jesus' sermon in which he gives us a paradoxical vision of the good life. A paradoxical vision of the good life. Verses 17 to 19 serve as kind of the, this uh, setting of what will be this first extended teaching section in Luke's Gospel. And here, Jesus and his twelve apostles, they come down from the mountain, and they arrive at this level place, this flat area, and there a great crowd of his other disciples is there. And then it says, as well as another great multitude. So there's three groups. There's the twelve, there's the other disciples, and then there's this other great multitude. And this group is gathered from all over. Judea, Samaria, all the way up the coast to Tyre and Sidon. Just, just describing this vast region that is the, the, from which people are gathering. And they gather, it says, to, to hear Jesus and to be healed of their diseases. It tells us that Jesus, as He often does, He also casts out the unclean spirits and brings curing for them. And so what we see in this, in this setting is that despite the opposition from the Pharisees, and as much as they have begun to try to come against Jesus, Jesus' reputation is spreading and He is becoming a big deal and many people are going out to see Him, to, 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 to understand Him and to be healed by Him. That's an incredible scene. They're the crowds that says they long to touch Jesus just because power was, was evident within Him to heal. And many people, all of them are, are, are healed in this time. And what we see, though, in the message that follows is that Jesus is going to challenge these people, not just to line up to receive healing, not just to simply have their physical needs addressed, but he's going to invite them into a way of being that is manifested in those that belong to his kingdom. And he wants to show us what it truly means to follow him, to offer them hope in the good news of the kingdom that he has been proclaiming. 
And so at this time, before we jump into the sermon, I think I have to say something about this because some of you will likely be curious if you notice that this passage sounds very familiar. Uh, this sermon is very similar to the much more well-known Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapter 5. So the natural question is, is this the same event or these different accounts? What is going on here? Because Luke's recording is actually, it sounds different than what we find in Matthew in some places. Um, some see this as a very separate event to where they, they call this the Sermon on the Plain, uh, reference to in verse 17 that, that this takes place at this level area, which is, is, is possible, but then others have said, well, Jesus just came down from a mountain and the language isn't a specific geographical designation, and so this could be a flat area at the base of the mountain. It could be the same place, just kind of spoken of in different terms. And so, um, ultimately... I don't think it matters one way or another. I think we do have to expect that Jesus taught the same thing in multiple places throughout his travels as he was going from town to town, synagogue to synagogue. Likely the message and the the things that Jesus spoke were similar and he used the same lessons over and over. So if we have two different settings that are similar, that would be expected. And if they are the same event, because there are a lot of similarities, that should not alarm us. Because we have to recognize that whether it's Matthew or Luke, both of them have, in all likelihood, edited and only recorded uh, certain parts of Jesus' teaching. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, it actually only takes about 10 to 15 minutes to read. And likely, based on that setting, Jesus taught for much longer than that period of time. So even Matthew is recording only a part of Jesus' teaching there in the Sermon on the Mount. So both Matthew and Luke could be recording the same event in different ways and just uh, recording them uh, in different edited forms. Now, some of you might actually think that we should take Luke and, you know, Matthew's uh, example and edit our sermons down to 15 minutes as well. But uh, nonetheless, we will press on. So, um, yep, all right, here we go. Buckle up. So, but what's important is, is that, that we want to we deal with Luke's account um, on Luke's terms and in his language here. So, uh, in verse 20, we are told uh, who Jesus speaks to. It says that he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. So even though there is this vast crowd there, he is specifically, in some sense, identifying and calling out to his disciples, which is important because it tells us that he is not offering them a list of conditions that they have to meet in order to enter his kingdom or be his disciples, but actually he's encouraging them how to view their current state in light of of their already established relationship with Him. And then He's giving the rest of His audience a vision of His kingdom that they are invited to join. And so He does this through these blessings and these woes that He presents. And so here we have four groups who He then declares are blessed. He says this, said, Blessed are you, who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you when people hate, exclude, insult, and reject you. And then he conversely gives these parallel woes. 
A woe is, is not exactly a declaration of judgment, but rather a, a statement of pity on someone's state. He says, woe to the rich, woe to the full, woe to those who laugh, and woe to those who are well spoken of by others. And at this point, you might be asking, how can this be true? That does not sound like the way life works. Jesus must be painting upside down because I can't see it. So what is Jesus trying to do in these very provocative statements that we may want to press back against? How can those who are poor possibly be blessed? I'd ask you to stick with me through this because we have to do some, some understanding here to try to really grasp what is happening here. First, we have to ask, what is Jesus even offering in these kinds of statements? These aren't common statements that we use and go around declaring over people necessarily. But at the time, these blessing statements were commonly used in the wisdom literature of the day. So to, to declare someone as, as, as blessed was a common way of approaching things. We, we've found these same, similar types of statements in different rabbis' writings of the time, and even later uh, in discovery of, of uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and those caves in Qumran, there's been uh, the discovery of different uh, uh, statements like this that were recorded, um, uh, that, that you're blessed in this condition. So this idea of blessing, what, is it, what does that even mean? There's actually a, a technical term for these kind of statements. They are macarisms. There's a term for the day, right? A macarism. Now, that's not a cookie. It's actually just a, a statement of blessing that is declared over someone. And so these, th what Jesus is doing is employing a commonly used rhetorical device here uh, that comes from the Greek word makarios, which is the word for, for blessing or happiness. But blessing can kind of be a junk drawer term for us, right? What does that ultimately even mean? And so I think it's important that we make some distinctions between the way that we use the word blessing or blessed. Because in the, in the Old Testament, we see uh, sometimes a pronouncement of God's blessing upon a person, right? We see Abraham, who God says, I will bless you. Or, or even, even sometimes we give at the end of our service a benediction, may the Lord bless you and keep you. A declaration of, of a statement of, of, of God, a pronouncement of God's blessing upon someone. That is not exactly how these statements work. But rather, these are declarations of a state of being that a person is in. Which is why sometimes this word will be, will be translated as happy. Or some would say, use the word flourishing. What is trying to be depicted through these statements is what is the state and the way and the path towards flourishing? What is the way to find happiness? And who, what describes those people who are in a state of happiness? And that's what these blessing statements, these macarisms are intended to try to set forth. And it's important to make those distinctions in the way we use the term blessed, because if not, we may be tempted to read these blessings as simple cause and effect statements. We might be tempted to say, well, that these are to be read that God will bless me if I perform the actions that are representative of these qualities that are described. 
So what Jesus is not doing is offering us four ways to get a blessing from God. Because if that is how we read them, then we're in some trouble. If these are are, are a means of gaining God's blessing, then all of us better have a big garage sale tomorrow, sell all of our stuff, and enter into a state of poverty if it's just the poor who will be blessed by God. We better get on the intermittent fasting bandwagon and skip a few meals and uh, be hungry a little bit. We better start working on, on being sad, learning how to cry, because that's the person who's blessed. We have to start making everybody mad at us, which maybe some of us are already good at that, I don't know. But I do not believe that this was Jesus' intention here. These are not universal statements of what to do to gain God's favor and His blessing, but rather Jesus is telling His followers that they can find blessing regardless of their external circumstances. And so how can we be helped in understanding these statements? I think one way is if we actually kind of flip these statements. Look at them a little differently. So that the second part of the statement is seen explicitly as the grounds for the initial pronouncement. That doesn't make sense. Let me illustrate that. It's not, it's not saying that if you make yourself poor, then God will bless you but rather because you belong to the kingdom of God, you can be poor now. He's not saying that if you skip a meal and are hungry, then God will then bestow blessing on you, but because full satisfaction awaits you in glory, your current hunger is minor. Because you will have the last laugh, your weeping, your sorrow, and your sadness today is not the whole story. Because you are storing eternal rewards, your present rejection, persecution, hardship is not a cause for sorrow, but rather is a cause for rejoicing because it declares and affirms the promises of God. Do you see what he's doing? With each of these statements, the second part of of these statements, the promise is so important because it's not that being poor, hungry, sad, or persecuted are intrinsically virtuous in and of themselves. And similarly with the woes, it's not as though being rich or having a a good meal or laughter or having a good reputation is inherently sinful. That's not his point. But the promise shows us the way in which happiness and flourishing can be found despite the initial condition that's described. And we have to remember who Jesus is actually speaking to. It's his fishermen, ragtag group of followers. It's basically basic everyday people, including the sick the poor, the rejected and marginalized of society, they were those who were seen as the cursed. And He's speaking to them and at times even describing their condition. And He's inviting them to experience blessing. And here is why. Not because He can just heal their bodies, but because He is offering them an eternal kingdom of which they are invited to be a part of. And as much as Luke does highlight their physical condition, Just like the healing of the paralytic, Jesus is inviting them to experiencing something far greater, an eternal and spiritual healing as well. 
And so as we try to look at these correctly, hopefully the picture begins to become more clear to us. So as we look at these, how should we understand these in our own lives? Because you belong to the kingdom of God, even in your current state of poverty, you may be on the path to flourishing. And this this example of the poor is not just a financial snapshot, but in, in describing the poor, he describes those who are well aware of how little they have, that they can bring nothing to the table, how they are the insignificant ones. And this even implies a state of spiritual poverty. These are those who clearly see their need and are thus in a position already ready to receive help from God. It's not often the wealthy or the elite or the theologians who easily see how Jesus rescues them. But it's as Matthew says, it's the poor in spirit. But why does he also offer a woe to the rich in this instance? Again, it's not because having wealth is intrinsically wrong. But again, we must look at the second part of the statement. He says, woe to the rich, for you have received your consolation. That word consolation is a unique term. It's actually a technical commercial term. And it's used for, for signing and accepting a receipt for payment that has been given. So it's, it's, it's saying if you have received your consolation, you have, you have signed and, and agreed that the payment has been fully made. So this is not a prohibition against possessing wealth, but it's a warning against cashing out now. He's saying that that, that those who have chosen present temporary gratification over future joy are the ones to be pitied. This principle I, I often try to teach my kids, it's so hard, especially when it comes to money. As they get money for their birthday or for, you know, shoveling the neighbor's driveway and they, 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 they start gaining and saving some money, their first initial reaction always, especially when they're young, is just to, to buy the first thing that they, can, that they see that captures their attention. Walking through the grocery store and it's, it's a, the, the cheap candy or it's the, the chintzy little toy or the flashlight. They just, they just see it and they, they want it and that thing is what's going to give them happiness and satisfaction now and they want to spend their money to, to obtain that. I'm always like, wow, maybe you should just consider and think through this a little bit. What if you saved your money? Because how, how long is that going to last you? What, do you? what joy are you going to get out of that? Because how long until that just ends up in the toy bin down in the basement? What if you actually saved your money? Put it together and, and really saved up for that, that, that pair of hockey skates that you really want that might actually last longer. And it's, it's this heart mindset that, that, that Jesus is getting at even here. The propensity of the human heart to choose and pour everything into present temporary gratification and give up on future joy. Again, there, there is no condemnation against having money and wealth but there sure are a lot of warnings against it. And a warnings for those who possess it, which if we're honest, is most of us in here. And it's most often the rich who struggle to see their need of Christ's kingdom because they are doing just fine right here and now. 
But in these Beatitudes, the future hope of God's kingdom takes root already right here in our present state. And that is what he highlights in these next two statements. And he encourages us that because you will be satisfied in Christ eternally, you can be hungry now. But woe to those who seek to be full and satisfied now because they will be hungry later. And this hunger certainly to his, to his audience has a, a physical dynamic to it. But as, as Matthew draws out and uses the more expansive, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness what here is, is, is not merely a physical hunger, but it's that which also points to everything that we long for, everything that we strive for, that we think will satisfy us in this life. He says, be warned. If you seek to be satisfied by the things of this world, the things of this age, the simple pleasures that you can find here, if you invest it all in that, then eventually in the end, you are going to be starved. It will not satisfy you. But even though now you may be called to give up some things, you may be called to, to suffer and strive, but ultimately you have an eternal source of satisfaction in what I'm offering you. He challenges them in this third one that because they will laugh that their tears today are actually meaningful. But, but a woe to those who laugh now because later they will only be left with mourning and weeping. And as I, as I thought and I wrestled through this statement, it's one that is a little harder to, to, to grasp and understand. Because none of us want to be seen as those who are just weeping and sorrowful and down all the time. But I think what Jesus is getting at is what it, what it means to genuinely experience sorrow. That those who weep, those who mourn now, do so because they recognize the brokenness of this world, the deep sorrow that exists here and now, and there is a longing for something better. But those who only laugh now, they do so only as they seek to ignore all of the pain, all of the difficulty, and they seek to just have a good time and, and somehow numb the pain that is so present around us regularly. This, this point was evident in my own life at the end of last year. There was this tragic event that occurred uh, in our neighborhood right across the street. A story of death and uh, murder and just brokenness and sorrow. Uh, that hit so close to home for me and my family. And in that time, I was just wrestling through just the, the pain of that event. And just how could that happen in this world? How could God even let it happen? The lives of two young girls were taken. And it just, it just filled me with such sorrow and grief. Genuine pain. And as I, as I talked sometimes with our neighbors to try to just even process that and hear that... One sense that I got from them is almost like a, a, an attempt to just ignore it. Because I didn't know what to do with it. To just move on and, and kind of pretend that yeah, bad things happen, but you know, I just kind of move on with life. But Jesus is saying that the blessed are those who recognize the sorrow and the brokenness of our world and long 
for the, everything to be made right, not just to ignore it, to find a way to laugh and make light of things now, just to get by. But the true path to flourishing is longing and looking for another day in which all wrongs will be made right. And this is the nature of the kingdom that Jesus is inviting these people to receive. There's only one of these statements that has a direct call for a response from us. It's this last one, where he says, Blessed are you when you are hated, excluded, insulted, and rejected. But there's also an important qualifier on this one, where he says that this happens on account of the Son of Man. So when we think about the way that we are treated by the world, we must be sure that when we are hated by the world, it is because of our commitment to Jesus. Not just because of our arrogance, our pride, or our hatred of the world. But we have to be honest that to truly follow Jesus will mean that in this world, we will be hated, we will be insulted, and at times we will be rejected. And when that happens, what is to be our response? Will we just bemoan the, the, the difficulty that we go through and bemoan the decline of our society? Or we, will, we, we look, as Jesus says, and, and say that our condition tells us that we can rejoice. That we can leap for joy. Why is that? Because our reward is great in heaven. We are not looking for approval and, and, and commendation from those around us here. And this is the pattern of Jesus' life. It's the cross before the crown. And he says, woe if you are spoken well of. This is not just a judgment against a good reputation. There's other passages that would affirm how we are to, to, to carry ourselves in this world. But he's, it's, it's a warning to say, hey, if the church's message in life never confronts our culture and our world, then it may be more in line with the false prophets of old that everybody loved because they told them what they wanted to hear. Our goal is not just to stir up fights, but in the end, the cross of Christ is an offense to a world that seeks to deny His Lordship. And the message and the life of the church community should at times confront our culture in deep and meaningful ways because we follow Him and are in full allegiance to Him. So when taken collectively... Jesus is actually offering us a way of being in the world that will lead to flourishing. And He challenges us to stop looking at our socioeconomic status as the determining factor into whether we are blessed or not. But rather, He's calling us to recognize that if we want to belong to His kingdom, this is who He's inviting in. This is who you are. He says, be careful because you may be looking in the wrong place for the good life. He challenges them to look to Him, to see Him first and foremost. And as they are the unacceptable in the socially defined world in which they currently live, they are not only tolerated, but embraced and restored in the new world that Jesus proclaims and embodies. And the woes remind us that if you think you've found what you want, if you think you have the good life now, then enjoy it while it lasts. Let me know how that works out for you. Because in the end, you may end up with nothing. 
Do you see this astounding reversal? At first, it it seems like a complete and utter paradox, but when we truly see Jesus, it begins to make a little bit of sense. So what about us? What is the vision of the good life that we are tempted to pursue? What if you think about these beatitudes in uh, common terms and, and values of our day? What are the held, commonly held beatitudes in our culture, in our society that we often maybe start to believe? Maybe it's happy are those who have a secure job and a sound retirement plan for they will feel safe. What about happy are those who know what they want out of life and they pursue it with everything they have for they will find personal fulfillment. Happy are the ones who hide all their faults and their failures for they can create their own righteousness. Happy are those who control all of their relationships because they will avoid loneliness and hurt. Or happy are those who live their truth for they will create their own identity. What are the things that we tend to start believing and buying into that we think will give us the path to flourishing? In these words of Jesus, He invites us to believe and to rest in God's eternal care despite our current conditions. Whether you are poor and at the end of your rope or whether you have a full bank account and a brand new home, that doesn't matter in God's kingdom. There's also a warning. Don't believe the lie that the path to flourishing is found in present comforts. Because if you do, you'll eventually be led to give up on Jesus, maybe even give up on the church. Maybe some of you are right there even now wanting to walk away from Jesus, wanting to walk away from the church community because it's not working out for you. Things haven't changed. You're still in the same place that you've been in for years. Don't be tempted to demand that future promises be fulfilled right here and now. As we look deeply at these paradoxical truths, I hope that what we begin to see is not just the crowd, but we actually turn our vision to Jesus. As much as he's, he's looking out on the crowd and, and calling out to them, what he's actually doing is in many ways pointing to himself and what he came to be. In his teachings, Jesus is not just a wisdom guru. He's not just one who is meant to just give us some virtues to think about, but he is one who embodies what he calls us to be. And he is the one who became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. He endured hunger as a man so that He could become the bread of life to satisfy us. He wept in sorrow over this broken world, so that He can bring in a kingdom in which every tear will eventually be wiped away. He was beaten, mocked, and rejected, so that we could be received and crowned with glory and honor. And He invites us to be united to Himself, so that His fullness becomes ours, and so the wholeness that we long for can actually be found in Him, The path to flourishing and happiness is only obtained as we follow Him into His kingdom. This is what He's announcing. And this is what He's inviting you and I to experience. I hope you realize that that these beatitudes and these woes are not merely a call for us to leave here and go and do. 
but they're things that are actually intended us just to, to sit with, to meditate upon, to allow them to, 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 to reshape our view of the world, to give us a fresh perspective. As, a, as spring kind of teases us each and every day on whether it's actually going to arrive, we, uh, one of the things that we have coming up is the annual planting of our garden in our backyard. And uh, the first thing that we have to do every year is we have to prepare our garden beds to receive the seed. So what we do is we always borrow a rototiller, I think, from the Grobergers or somebody, and, and we get out there and we, we, we start churning up the soil. As it's been lying there over the cold, long winter, it's become hardened, dried out, and we need to prepare it. So we have to, we have to churn it up. We have to add some compost and other nutrients into the soil to prepare it to receive the seed and to grow and to produce this next summer. And I think these words of Jesus in many ways work like that in our own lives. As our hearts become hardened and dried out by the oppressive nature of this world and the, and the lies and the, and, the, and the ideas of our society around us, we need words like this to act like a rototiller in our own lives to stir up and break up our misconceptions of where the good life is found. To, to, to stir up our, our perception of, of the way to flourishing. And to, 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 to break that up and to plant within us a new vision of what life, happiness, and flourishing looks like. And it's only as we pursue those realities through following Jesus, can we actually find the path to happiness that we all long for? So I pray that these truths would be things that we all meditate upon, that we allow to work over in our lives even today, to reshape our view, to give us a fresh perspective, so that we can see the beautiful paradoxical image that is the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for these truths. Give us eyes to see, Father. Give us, give us hearts to believe these things. Let us, let us not believe the lies of this world that the path to, to happiness is in riches. That the path to flourishing is by being liked. But let us understand that regardless of the state that we are in currently, that Your kingdom is, in, is that which in which we are all invited to participate. And You've made a way for us into that through Your Son. So I pray that You would shape our hearts to believe these things. To live as Your people. To find hope amidst the darkness, amidst the struggle. And let us rest in Your perfect care for us. And that one day, You will wipe away every tear. And we will enter in to eternity with You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.